European Hearts Journal issue at a glance. Volume 37, issue 47, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Aortic Stenosis, Expanding Treatment Options Aortic stenosis has markedly increased in prevalence and incidence as the life expectancy of citizens in Western societies has increased substantially. Indeed, we learned that there are patients with high-gradient, low-flow, low-gradient, and even paradoxical low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. While surgical valve replacement was the treatment of choice for decades, Transarterial valve implantation, or TAVI, has become an increasingly safe, effective, and attractive treatment option in patients at high risk for surgery. A downside, particularly in the first generation TAVI valves, is the relatively high prevalence of paravalvular leaks with impact on clinical outcome. However, as outlined by Fabian Nietlisbach and colleagues from the University Heart Center in Zurich, Switzerland, in the review Percutaneous Paravalvular Leak Closure Chasing the Chameleon, a catheter-based approach can also solve the problem. The authors note that paravalvular leaks occur after both surgical and transcatheter valve replacement or implantation, respectively. This can lead to hemolysis, heart failure, and may increase the risk of endocarditis. Recently, Proper adjudication of such leaks has been well-defined, setting the basis for proper management. Percutaneous closure has significantly less morbidity than reoperation and is therefore often the therapy of choice. Percutaneous paravalvular leak closure can make an important difference for patients and can improve patient prognosis. Whether and in what patient population TAVI is superior to surgical valve replacement remains an ongoing debate. In a fast-track paper entitled Transcatheter Aortic Valve Implantation versus Surgical Aortic Valve Replacement for Treatment of Severe Aortic Stenosis, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials, Stefan Windecker and colleagues from the University Hospital Bern in Switzerland Note that in light of current evidence available from randomized trials, they aims to compare the collective safety and efficacy of transcatheter aortic valve implantation versus surgical aortic valve replacement across the spectrum of risk and in important subgroups. Trials comparing transcatheter aortic valve implantation versus surgical aortic valve replacement were identified through Medline, Embase, and Cochrane databases. The primary outcome was death from any cause at two years. The authors performed random effects meta-analyses to combine the available evidence and to evaluate the effect in different subgroups. This systematic review and meta-analysis is registered with Prospero. The authors then identified four eligible trials, including 3,806 participants who were randomly assigned to undergo transcatheter aortic valve implantation N equals 1,898, or surgical aortic valve replacement, N equals 1,908. For the primary outcome of death from any cause, transcatheter aortic valve implantation, as compared with surgical aortic valve replacement, 
was associated with a significant 13% reduction with homogeneity across all trials irrespective of transcatheter aortic valve implantation device and baseline risk. In subgroup analyses, transcatheter aortic valve implantation showed a robust survival benefit over surgical aortic valve replacement for patients undergoing transfemoral access but not transthoracic access and in female but not male patients. Secondary outcomes of kidney injury, new-onset atrial fibrillation, and major bleeding favored transcatheter aortic valve implantation, while major vascular complications and incidents of permanent pacemaker implantation favored surgical aortic valve replacement. They conclude that compared with surgical aortic valve replacement, transcatheter aortic valve implantation is associated with a significant survival benefit throughout two years of follow-up. Importantly, this superiority is observed irrespective of the transcatheter aortic valve implantation device across the spectrum of intermediate and high-risk patients and is particularly pronounced among patients undergoing transfemoral transcatheter aortic valve implantation and in females. This work is put into further perspective in an editorial by Stephen J.D. Brecker from St. George's Hospital in London, UK. For decision-making of any cardiac conditions, the natural history of untreated individuals should be known. Unfortunately, current estimates of the natural history and prevalence of aortic stenosis are based on historical studies with potential sources of bias. Indeed, today, such patients are at least in part much older, more fragile, and may have more comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, renal failure, but also inflammatory diseases, such as psoriasis or even transthyretin amyloidosis. Furthermore, particularly in older subjects, aortic stenosis may be underdiagnosed as doctors and patients explain their declining exercise capacity with age. In a large-scale community echocardiographic screening reveals a major burden of undiagnosed valvular heart disease in older people, the Oxvalve Population Cohort Study, Bernard Prendergast and colleagues from the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, UK, report the results of a cross-sectional analysis of the clinical and epidemiological characteristics of valvular heart disease identified at recruitment of a large cohort of 2,500 older people aged over or equal to 65 years from a primary care population and screened for undiagnosed valvular heart disease using transthoracic echocardiography. Newly identified and predominantly mild valvular heart disease was detected in 51% of participants. The most common abnormalities were aortic sclerosis in 34%, mitral regurgitation in 22%, and aortic regurgitation in 15%, while aortic stenosis was present in only 1.3%. The likelihood of undiagnosed valvular heart disease was twofold higher in the two most deprived socioeconomic quintiles than in the most affluent ones, and threefold higher in individuals with atrial fibrillation. Clinically significant, moderate or severe undiagnosed valvular heart disease was identified in 6.4%. In addition, 5% of the cohort had pre-existing valvular heart disease with a total prevalence of 11%. Projecting these findings using population data 
the authors estimate that the prevalence of clinically significant valvular heart disease will double before 2050. Overall, they conclude that previously undetected valvular heart disease affects one in two of the elderly population and is more common in lower socioeconomic classes. These unique data demonstrate the contemporary clinical and epidemiological characteristics of valvular heart disease in a large population-based cohort of older people and confirm the scale of the emerging epidemic of valvular heart disease with widespread implications for clinicians and healthcare resources. This manuscript is further discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Scott D. Solomon from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, USA. As mentioned above, aortic stenosis and transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis are both frequent in the elderly. The combination of these two diseases has never been investigated. In an EHJ brief communication, aortic stenosis and transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, the chicken or the egg, Thibault Dami and colleagues from the Henri Mondor Teaching Hospital in Créteil, France, aimed to describe patients with concomitant aortic stenosis and transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. Six cardiologic French centers identified retrospectively cases of 16 mainly male patients with severe or moderate aortic stenosis associated with transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis with a mean age of 79 years, hospitalized during the last six years. Two-thirds were in NYHA class 3 to 4, one-third had carpal tunnel syndrome, and more than half had atrial fibrillation. Interventricular septum thickness was 18 millimeters, left ventricular ejection fraction was 50%, and global longitudinal strain minus 7% respectively. Median NT pro BNP averaged 4,382 picograms per milliliter, and 91% had elevated cardiac troponin levels. Overall, 88% had severe aortic stenosis, of whom the majority had low-gradient aortic stenosis. Diagnosis of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis was histologically proven in one-third and was based on strong cardiac uptake of bone tracer at scintigraphy in the rest. 81% had wild-type transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, one had mutated VAL122i, and in 19% genetic testing was unavailable. Valve replacement was surgical in 63%, and with TAVI in 13%. Overall mortality was 44% during follow-up. The authors conclude that a combination of aortic stenosis and transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis albeit probably rare, may occur in elderly patients, particularly those with a low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis, and is associated with a bad prognosis. Diagnosis of transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis in aortic stenosis is relevant to discuss specific treatment and management that may become available in the future. In a second EHJ brief communication, Iron alters valvular interstitial cell function and is associated with calcification in aortic stenosis. Magnus Black and colleagues from the Karolinska University Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden, remind us that iron accumulates in aortic valves 
after intraleaflet hemorrhages. Uptake by valvular interstitial cells then stimulates proliferation, extracellular remodeling, and calcification of the valvular tissue, suggesting that valvular iron uptake favors aortic stenosis progression. Iron metabolisms have raised great interest in heart failure, and its molecular mechanisms are increasingly understood, thus opening novel avenues for future treatment options. This issue ends with a special article on the 200th anniversary of the stethoscope, Can This Low-Tech Device Survive the High-Tech 21st Century? by Albert Bruschke and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in Leiden, the Netherlands. In 1816, Lenek discovered that auscultation of the heart and lungs could effectively be performed by placing a hollow cylinder, initially made of a roll of paper, between the chest of the patient and the ear of the examiner. This was the first step in the development of the stethoscope, which was a breakthrough in the diagnosis and management of cardiac and pulmonary patients. Technical improvements of the stethoscope followed, and in cardiac patients, auscultation soon became a major diagnostic tool. In the second half of the 20th century, new powerful non-invasive diagnostic modalities were developed and the interest in auscultation declined. Thus, the auscultatory skills of students and physicians decreased to a disappointingly low level. Nevertheless, the time-honoured stethoscope, despite its limitations, still has potential as a patient-friendly, effective, and economical instrument in medical practice. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.